Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lizenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. Good morning, Kristen. How are you? How are things? What's going on? Well, good afternoon from the future, (laughs) Um, but things are great. How are you today? Things are good. Um, You know, it's a rainy Monday here in Brooklyn. Mercury is in its retrograde shadow soon to turn retrograde. I have allergies, listeners, you can hear it in my voice, and it's also the beginning of eclipse season, so yeah, I don't know, with all of these celestial happenings, how are you feeling? Well, I saw a video of a tiny chick sleeping atop a flower earlier today, and I thought, mm. that looks really nice. Um, so, I want that. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's definitely my mood right now, um, you know, to be determined what it will look like in a couple of weeks. Um, but I imagine I'll be in the garden a lot because when things get a little too emotional or intense, that's usually where I go. Um, yes, you can find me covered in dirt. Um, but how are you feeling and how are you usually feeling leading up to these moments like retrogrades and eclipses? Um, I feel like it definitely helps for me to know about these things instead of being in the dark. Yeah. Dirt therapy is so real. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm headed to Robbins for apprenticeship tomorrow, which I know is going to definitely give me some roots in this season, mm-hmm. which is nice. But yeah, it can be super intense. And and I just want to say I see you to any of our listeners who are just going through it right now and just sending out big astrological starry sky hugs to the witch wide web. And yeah, I just try to always remind myself that these uh, moments, especially retrogrades, are great for release and reflection and taking that pause. And and yeah, and eclipses have potentials to create new pathways and epic departures from life as we know it. And that's not always a bad thing, you know? It's true. Yeah. So Kristen, what is our listener question for today? Well, a couple of people have reached out about kitchen witchery and what it means to be a kitchen witch. Um, So we thought we could share a little bit about what we've been brewing. So Kate, what's happening in your kitchen? Mm, Great question. Our group text with Caitlin Barone has been blowing up this weekend. Kristen and I've been loving it because we've just been talking about Violets, violet lemonade, making lilac elixirs, baking sage leaves into crisps, all things that I love to do in spring. But, you know, I would also just love to pass along some advice from Robin Rose Bennett about eating wild food. 
Robin just loves to encourage us to top dishes, especially in spring, with the harvest of the garden, including onion grasses, mustard greens, mugwort, dandelion, plantain. And I just think that working with weeds as a way to fortify in spring as we soften after winter is just so potent and not to mention delicious. So Mm -hmm. what's new in your kitchen, Kristen? I love all of those ideas. For me, it's nettle everything right now, which I know we talk about nettle all the time. (laughs) Eric and I are clearing out like some overgrown areas near the border of our property, and we're trying to harvest the medicinal plants. So nettle is everywhere, and I'm making nettle infusions at least once a week. Usually I will brew a couple handfuls in the evenings with a little bit of lemon or orange peel, uh, simmer on low for a little bit, and then let it cool and refrigerate overnight. I will usually drink it first thing in the morning before my tea. Um, And FYI, if any listeners out there want to try this and you haven't, I have to tell you it looks sort of scary because it will be completely black, um, the infusion, um, but it's really not that scary. It just sort of tastes like grass. It's not that bad, um, especially if you added the lemon peel or the orange peel. And I've also been working more with dandelion root. Um, I know that's like a weed that everyone has in their yard if you have a little bit of green space. And I just harvested a big plant the other day. I dried the root and ground it into a powder for a future potion. Um, And then I also just planted a ton of calendula babies yesterday, which I love to infuse into bombs and oils and um, to add as colorful toppers for salads, like you said Robin Rose was recommending. Um, So I see myself eating a lot more weeds as spring turns to summer. Um, So witches, plant lovers, share your favorite weedy recipes with us if you have any. Yes, definitely. Eat your weeds, friends. Mm-hmm. I have some nettle infusion in my fridge uh, for so me good. to drink after this call, and I can't yes. wait. <laughs> but would you like to introduce our guest for today, Kristen? I would love to. Felicia Cocuzin Ruiz is a curandera, author, indigenous foods activist, and natural food chef whose work is deeply rooted in the healing properties of all earth medicines. Her business came to be after friends lovingly called her the kitchen curandera, as she was often creating healing foods and remedies in her tiny adobe kitchen. Her work has been featured in Food and Wine, Spirituality and Health, and on Padma Lakshmi's Taste the Nation, among many other platforms. Felicia lives with her husband in Phoenix, Arizona, where she works with the sun, the moon, and the elements, offering medicine workshops and one-on-one healing sessions for her community. In this conversation, Felicia guides us through the seasonal and cyclical, the magic of earth medicines with perspectives on cultural appropriation and misappropriation, creating herbal remedies, ancestral veneration, and connecting with the earth energies and stories that surround us. Felicia joined us from her home via Zoom. (laughs) 
Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lisenby. And today we have Felicia Kokotzin Ruiz with us. What an honor. Welcome, Felicia. Good morning. Good day. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. And I know Kate and I can't wait to dive into today's discussion. But to start, can you share a little bit about who you are and your work with our listeners today? Sure. Um, I would say a couple of years ago, I had to come up with something that could best describe what I do um, because it really was a a paragraph. So I like Mm -hmm. to say I'm a storyteller of wellness. Um, That's what I do with food. That's what I do with uh, lifestyle as medicine. Um, I guess you could say now I'm an author and um, really just a a person who's really trying to reclaim the kitchen healer in in all ways. On your website, too, you say that you're a curandera author, indigenous food activist, natural food chef, and that you write that curanderas are natural healers who carry knowledge of foods, herbs, and other cultural remedies working with the body, mind, and spirit. And curanderismo, it is believed that disease can be caused by psychological, physical, and spiritual factors, creating disharmony of the body, mind, or soul, and that curanderas help bring people out of that disease state and back into harmony with various remedies and little rituals. And I'd love to know a little bit more about what this beautiful word means to you. And I would also love to know your first memory of working with earth medicine or earth magic and what drew you to this path. Sure. So being a curandera, um, I use that word because I identify as a woman and female, um, but there are curanderos and um, it's really, we're practicing a very old um, traditional um, knowledge way that's mostly been just passed down orally called curanderismo, which is just the practice of being a curandera and working with all of the different elements and um, everything from dreams, body, mind, spirit, how your house feels, um, evil eye work. Um, also on a practical sense though, it is very much rooted in the wisdom of like grandmother medicine, because long ago for um, people like me who are native to this continent, um, a lot of us call what I do alternative therapy, but for us historically, this was not our alternative therapy. This was our first therapy or our first medicine. And perhaps going to see um, a doctor would be considered the alternative. So it's a little bit backwards based on just colonial um, construct. So it's just me pat, like, practicing it and hopefully teaching others, including my own daughter, when she wants to know certain things, like to keep our tradition alive. Because again, it, it is um, an oral tradition of wellness. Um, and it's really quite beautiful um, to see how now there are people um, in this generation that we're starting to surface in ways because of social media. And now we're writing books like I have and things like that to um, share this wisdom in a 
I guess, in um, a respectful way. And on your website, um, it says that your business name was inspired by your friends, which I thought was really amazing (laughs) um, because they called you the Kitchen Curandera. Um, And so I'd love for you just to speak a little bit about your business and just the magic of engaging with food and the plant world for healing and ritual. Right. So my brand is called Kitchen Curandera. And some people will call me the Kitchen Curandera, but I don't believe I'm the Kitchen Curandera. I'm just a Kitchen Curandera, (laughs) but my brand is Kitchen Curandera. Um, And I got that name um, or came to that name because years ago, I, I owned a restaurant actually for a while. And some of my close friends, they would just hang out with me at the restaurant, you know, maybe in the morning if I was cooking and the other chefs and people were there. And one day someone just said, I remember this moment, actually, I was at the stove and they were watching me cook and they just said, you know, you really are a kitchen curandera. And then Mm -hmm. they sparked that into motion because from then on, other people started saying that. And that was probably 2008. So that was a while ago. And I didn't actually start this business of kitchen curanderismo, you know, working as a healer in the kitchen until 2014. So it kind of took a while to evolve. And it really, um, I guess, embodies all parts of me being a chef, being a holistic, you know, cook, working with plant medicine, but also using that word because that word is identifies me very much so as a a Chicana. So you brought up a little bit about your book and authorship. Can you tell us a little bit about earth medicines, ancestral wisdom, healing recipes, and wellness rituals from a curandera? And what was the intention when you sat down to write it? I have been telling stories and sharing information for decades. And I knew at some point in my life, I would probably write a book on just what I could share for other people. And my goal was to have that book before I was 50. And so it's actually quite beautiful that it came out, I think, one month after I turned 50. And Mm. um, I really wanted the intention, which I state in the book, was to remind everybody who reads it that we are all healers. Um, Because people come to see me... um, for different work, uh, whether it's re-indigenizing their diet or ancestral work, you know, whatever they're coming to see me for, I always remind them that I don't hold any power, that the power is always on them. And that's kind of what I wanted to transfer into the book was that everybody can be their own healer. And so this was just um, an opportunity for me to share things in a way um, we all talk about cultural appropriation, and so I speak on cultural misappropriation, probably more than cultural appropriation, and letting people know that it's okay to use um, our wellness practices, so long as you're really being um, respectful to where you learned it from, and you're doing it in a way that you're honoring the people um, that carried that wisdom. So that's really what that's all about. And it just so happened that when I was putting the book together, I didn't know how it was going to come together. And when my editor was really helping me with that process, I had this light bulb moment of everything that I'm always doing 
always revolved around air, earth, water, or fire. And so I was able to um, put the chapters together and then within each chapter talk about how to use it in ritual, spiritually, practical, you know, in food or for beauty, you know, in beauty in a way that was just about inner beauty and outer beauty. Yeah, I really loved the recipes in your book. You shared so many of them. Um, And one thing that I loved is that the book is organized by the elements, like you just mentioned. So can you speak a little bit about the elements and how they show up in your personal practice? Mm -hmm. So just as an example, um, when I earned my title of curandera from the elders in my community, we were given, or each curandera or curanderos given, um, like a clay vessel that we use to burn our incense, you know, but for us, it's the resins and things. And so one of the example I, I can give you is that vessel, it's made of earth, right? It's clay. So it was made of earth and water together. And yet we're putting dirt on the bottom so that the charcoal or the coal, you know, the the doesn't burn and crack that. So we've got fire Then we're putting plant material on there. Sometimes we use the feathers to like waft the scent. And so someone might just look at that and say, oh, well, she's just burning, you know, copal or she's burning cedar or something. But in the bigger picture, it's a lesson about how we're working with all of those different elements just when we are, and I'm using air quotes to smudge um, because that's not a word that I grew up saying, but when we're doing a limpia for someone, when we're doing a cleansing for someone, we're really embracing all of those elements. So that would just be one very simple example. And in your book, um, I guess I should say too, I am talking about recipes, you sharing <laughs> recipes, but you share tea recipes, you share recipes for hair oils and body bombs and gemstone perfumes and hydrosols. Um, but you also share other rituals, um, like how you create and maintain an ancestor altar. So I was curious, what is something that you've learned um, from not only creating an ancestor altar, but consistently showing up to this kind of sacred space? Mm-hmm. Well, thankfully, I grew up with um, in a home that had a huge ancestor altar. So it was always just part of our day-to-day And I think um, watching my mom, you know, perhaps put flowers or burn things like it just was part of our everyday house, right? Activity. And so for me, I needed one in my house and I've always kept one in my house as an adult. And I've now learned that it's really become almost like a portal. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I can go there and have um, a quiet moment, maybe to talk to my late brother or talk to my grandmothers. And I think because I use it consistently, not one day goes by and I have a traveling one, you know, when I'm doing work abroad. But I really think that um, I've received, well, I don't think, I know I've received uh, very clear messages, all because I have said, I'm in in a receiving mode, like I am tuning in to what information you have. And I think that little portal space physically, it's helpful for me because I think I'm looking at everything and I can see maybe some of their pictures. You know, I have my dad's 
fish knife on there and I feel like he's protecting me out there. And, and then at the same time, I feel like I'm also appeasing them. And it's like, they're somehow living their best human life, you know, through the things that perhaps I'm doing. And that's really, really rooted in um, my, my Mexican indigenous side. Do you have any insights or, or recommendations for any of our listeners who have never worked with an ancestor altar who might want to begin that practice, especially the traveling ancestor altar? Mm-hmm. Sure. So sometimes I'll work with people that have never um, venerated an ancestor, perhaps because of their own upbringing. Maybe they were also taught it was not you know, a good thing to do, but because it's coming from um, my own personal experience, I'm able to share things that um, usually are somehow, let's see, the ingredients are usually including food. And so mm-hmm. I'll always tell people, um, because I don't want them, again, to to appropriate how I'm doing it. So I don't want people to feel like they need some kind of Dia de Muertos altar, which I don't have year around, but you know, I think that's what people might envision for someone who's of Mexican descent. But I want people to tap into whatever ancestors resonate with them. And so for instance, as a person who um, also carries the colonizer's blood, like I know that there are beautiful um, Spanish and Portuguese ancestors within me somewhere, right? And so I'll tap into those and I'll maybe put um, Spanish sea salt or I'll find some like Portuguese sardine tins or something just like funny that I can put on my ancestor altar that makes me feel like, hey, I'm acknowledging that you are, you exist. And if you want to come and help me and now where and see where gosh, like I could be your 12th grandchild, you know, da, 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 like show up for me and start healing perhaps some of those ancestral wounds that our family line carries. And so I like to give them little things, little offerings. And sometimes, yes, it is for them, but I think it's also healing for me to do those, that kind of work. So that's to answer your question in a roundabout way. I always steer people in the direction usually of food and herbs. You know, sometimes I'll work with people that say, I I have zero idea what my ancestors ate or anything. And I'll say, well, do you know where they're from? Sometimes people will say, well, I know my family's Irish. I'm like, great, go get some Celtic sea salt. It's like super simple. You can put it on your altar, Google um, ethnobotany of Ireland and start there. There's so much that people have um, at their fingertips now. And I always say, bring that into your modern practice. Mm. I love that. It's food as portals too. Yes, definitely. And I do believe, and I've said this before, it's like there, I, for me personally, it kind of, um, it felt familiar on my tongue when I started eating certain foods I did not grow up. I grew up in the desert. We did not grow up eating sardines. And yet the first time I ever had a sardine, I was in um, Southern Spain and I was like, whoa, this somehow, I, I recognize this flavor or something like, and it was so unusual to me, but I liked it. And I'm like, I'm convinced that some little 
Spanish grandmas in there going like, oh yeah, like that's why you like olives. That's why you like these things. Like I'm showing up in that way. And so that's why I love using food in that way. Do you happen to remember the first thing that you learned to cook that you fell in love with? I can't say I fell in love with it um, because it's now just become an everyday thing. But I remember um, cooking beans um, Mm. because most uh, families, the mom, you know, is the cook in many of our cultures and the they would put the beans on the table and usually get the little ones to clean the beans. And so, you know, back then things weren't, I, I'm assuming packaged and processed the same way. So like there would always be like tons of rocks and things like that. So we would just get our little fingers and start so- sorting them out. And I really have um, mm-hmm. pretty strong memories of just using my fingers and going through. And then when it was done feeling like, oh, I accomplished something. And, you know, to this day, I still, um, I, I go back, I can see the little counter that I would stand on a little stool to do that. Mm-hmm. It feels very like tactile. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And we would learn counting. <laughs> And so I, I know that the seasons influence what you harvest and, and make. And so what plants and potions are calling to you right now as we move into spring and then summer? So right now um, in the Sonoran Desert where I live, um, we have all of our acatillo blossoms um, mm-hmm. that are coming into bloom. And that is one of my favorite flowers. Um, having grown up in the desert, um, we love making um it's not a very strong tasting iced tea. It's a little astringent, but um, we will we will make like a sun tea with those blossoms. So those are usually starting to pop up right about now. So I'm looking forward to that. And I also want to say just because of the indigenous plant saver in me, anyone that's listening, um, do not go and harvest Ocotillo blossoms if you're in Arizona because they are a state protected plant. You have to have permission Mm. first. (laughs) Yes. The first time I came to your work was on the desert walk in the Chestnut School of Herbs. Oh, yes. And that was so special to see. But yes, listeners, United Plant Savers. (laughs) Yes. Check them out. Make sure before you go plant walking. And I would love to jump back to your book for just a second, um, Earth Medicines. The foreword of this book reads, this book offers more than just recipes. It provides an opportunity for you to reflect upon your own personal relationship with food and medicine. How is it connected to identity and places of origin? And to remember the sacred nature of food no matter who we are or where we come from. Food connected all of life and provides a pathway forward to reclaiming balance and peace with people and all of nature. So Felicia, for our listeners who may be new to this concept or maybe they feel intimidated by working with plants, um, how do you think someone can begin to build a closer, more sacred relationship with nature and what we consume? There's so much um, 
in that question. And mm-hmm. first, I want to say the forward um, was written by my auntie Mona. Um, she's one of the founding members of the International Council of the 13 Indigenous Grandmothers. And so she was writing um, as from her perspective of working mostly with water. And, you know, she's been such a great mentor for me. And um, when I asked her to do the forward, she really um, wanted to include how in our culture, working seasonally with the plants for food was such a way to connect not only to the earth, um, but to just remind us of where we are. And so on that note, I mean, I guess for people who are just on this journey and, and do feel intimidated, I think sometimes they hear the word words plant medicine and they feel like, you know, am I having to work with ayahuasca or things like that? And I've never even worked with those things. Lavender can be a beautiful beginning. And if it's part of your culture, then even more beautiful. Um, it's about saying, where do I live? What is the name of this actual place that I live? It had a name before it had an English name. Um, I love giving that as a piece of um, an advice or a suggestion for people that want to feel more connected um, to their, to their uh, land. I never want people to feel that they're somehow disconnected from nature. So I know we are part of nature. So knowing that you're part of the um, land, I think is also just a, another level of understanding and healing. And it really helps create a relationship. And I don't know. I, I also think that when you're able to, like, if you're trying to embrace plant medicine or the land nature into your practice, it's like, if you have a teacher, you know, that teacher's name, right? And they're teaching you all of these things. And oftentimes we're on these journeys many times alone. We're reading books, we're listening to podcasts like this. And so it's it's important that you know where you are. And that is just already an amazing way to um, feel like you have like this um, overarching teacher that is there and embracing you and, and helping you understand um, the land as it as it is, I guess, as a teacher. I think working with plants too, it's like you have to be open to getting it wrong sometimes, right? Like sometimes you have to, quote, fail at what you're doing, like fail at the recipe in order for the plant to teach you whatever it is it's trying to teach you. Um, Yeah, you have to be patient for sure. Yes, I think be patient, but I also think that people, they... um, Beginners, especially, they um, they try to and and in clinical herbalism, yes, but I think that they put a lot of um, I don't know stress on the process when really mm-hmm. this is grandmother wisdom where nothing was ever measured. It was just always like this and that, and put it in the sun or buried in the ground. <laughs> like it was, ne- there was never like a, a scale of measurement, and so I think that. That's something to, um, for those of, you know, people that are learning this is to have compassion with yourself and remember that we're, we're working with plants and grandmother medicine. We call it abuelita medicine. And so I don't really even see the word fail. It's more of just like you're understanding um, differently and, and you're listening 
listening. And you mentioned too in the book resourcefulness, like um, showing sort of the picture of possible tools, but also just thinking about reusing and gifting, getting jars from your friends with the promise that you'll fill them up with something fun. (laughs) And yeah, like I was taught always, you know, do the the ritual with the, the best that you can, but not to like not do it because of it, you know, like, and that's, yeah, wise woman tradition. It's, I think that, um, that's a very, very important part to the process because I did not want to write a book about creating remedies and, and things like that, knowing that I came from super humble beginnings where, you know, for starters, none of us had things like Amazon and stuff like that as we were, as when we were young, but I grew up watching grandmas make things in old coffee cans or, you know, just using the mug for measurement as so many of us did. And I never wanted anybody to feel that they somehow needed to go and have like this perfectly curated, um, Instagrammable, you know, space to, to do everything that half the stuff that I get are things that I have saved and recycled, or maybe I'll go to the thrift store. I love those things. And of course I'm giving my own little energetic blessings on them as I'm reusing them. But to me, it would be, um, I guess, dishonorable to feel like I was encouraging people to consume more when the book is titled earth medicines. (laughs) Yes. I, you know, I, it was funny. I was telling Kristen before we got on the call, like I have never made a hydrosol because I was under the impression that I needed a copper still. And upon reading your book, I'm like, wow, like mind blown. Like I can yeah, now try this need, new yeah, process. You just need a, a pot and some plants and some ice <laughs> and it works. I mean, it really does work. And, um, I've had actually that specific recipe. Many people reach out, you know, through Instagram or send me an email saying that they absolutely loved um, that recipe because again, it was, it broke it down to just how easy it is to do. And it's a reminder that again, this is grandmother medicine. This is nothing that requires, you know, a $10,000 still. (laughs) (laughs) Just switching gears for a moment, Felicia, um, in your book, under the chapter titled Water is a Magical Shapeshifter, you talk about a Mexican water goddess um, whose name I will let you pronounce, but could you tell our listeners about her and why she's simultaneously loved and feared? Sure. So that's, um, and that is a difficult word to say or name to say, but it's Chalchulchit. And um, she, she who has, you know, the, the jade skirt. Um, in the book, I, I just want to first start my answer by saying I had, I said water goddess because if, and that was just one piece of the book. So throughout mm-hmm. the book, I do mention different deities or um, earth warriors, you know, from, from my culture and also from around the world. But I wanted to um, remind people that in the Mexica um, tradition, there's really not gods or goddesses. They're more like representations of the, say, element of water in this case. 
But I think through the colonial lens, it was deemed, she was deemed like the water goddess. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it kind of, um, it's a, I like mentioning that because um, I think that was a, a Spanish, like Catholic thing that came about to say like, oh, we have all these gods and goddesses, but it was just really representations of water and, or, you know, air or things like that. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, so throughout the book, sometimes I'll say <clears throat> she represents water mm-hmm. and as known as a goddess, you know, but mm-hmm. I, I'm just wanting to be very clear on that. And so just like with water, you know, um, we need that to drink, to stay hydrated, to cleanse ourselves. We use it um, you know, as a baño, like a sacred spiritual bath, we use the steam to um, perhaps open our lungs up or to use after we've had a child. But then on the other side of the spectrum, in all indigenous um, knowledge ways around the world, everything is always about harmony. And so, you know, you can't have harmony unless there's disharmony. So sometimes those things also come into play, such as um, hurricanes with the wind or a storm, you know, that can bring flash floods and things like that. So that's where I meant it, um, that her her level of strength can be um, feared when it's at that space, in that space of like destruction. And how do you work with earth warriors as you've called them in your own practice? Can you give any examples for our listeners? Right. Well, I have been a curious one since I can remember. So just as an example, um, I am not um, of the sub Indian subcontinent, like I'm not South Asian, but I love some of the teachings that are in Ayurveda that might be also connected to that, um, to those earth warriors, to those uh, medicine keepers. And I love how just using them as an example in a lot of the Hindu texts and those texts, like they also have their, let's say, representations. Um, They may or may not, I don't know for sure, call them gods or goddesses, right? But they still also represent Um, the elements just like ours do. And so, for instance, um, if I was wanting to bring in more of that change energy that I crave sometimes, it could be like wanting a little bit more creativity. Perhaps I'll work with my own asking like those um, warriors of air, you know, that bring in that change. And if I'm feeling it for whatever reason, then maybe I'll also ask... um, in with permission, you know, to them, like, may I ask you to help me? It's like, I'm not commanding them to, because I also recognize that's not of my culture. And I'll ask for permission if they can help me with something. And I love that. And it actually, it's been really um, nice for our household because my husband's mother is Indian. So I kind of feel like somehow we've got like this whole team of, you know, earth warriors, you know, around the world, um, kind of helping us in our home. I love imagining that. (laughs) My little entourage of earth warriors. (laughs) I know my brain was like lost on that. I'm like, wow, what a beautiful image. (laughs) Yeah. 
So Felicia, you just brought up cultural appropriation versus misappropriation, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could expound on these thoughts a little bit more. Sure. So in curanderismo, um, we are actually a tradition based on many appropriations. And I know for people that might sound confusing because we're in a, a time where we're always talking about cultural appropriation. But like I have mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm native to this continent, but I also am part Spanish, I'm part West African, um, all as a result of um, colonization. And so when people were brought uh, to central Mexico, you know, they were people from all different cultures practicing all different types of witchery and healing and medicine ways and food ways. And they came with all of these beautiful stories and they were put in a space where they had to now um, function and and survive with the indigenous people of that area of Mesoamerica. And so as this healing way evolved, everyone appropriated each other's medicine ways. It was like a survival skill. So Mm -hmm. for instance, in my own practice, we may work with lavender and rosemary, right? So those things do not grow, not, they were not indigenous to central Mexico. They were brought with the Spaniards. Um, another example is we work with the evil eye a lot. And yet that also was not a tradition of central Mexico that also came along. And, and yet we saw that these um, medicine ways, knowledge ways, grandmother wisdom ways, like everybody um, perhaps was like a sponge to one another's medicine ways during this time. And that's why this is a 500 year old practice because it has been rooted in all of this. Now, the difference between cultural misappropriation, I'll give the example of working with the roboso. So roboso, for those that might not know, um, is like a shawl, like a Mexican kind of shawl that we wear. And we are sometimes gifted one as children. We have it when we get married. We are often buried with it. It's something we use for pregnancy by tying around our abdomen. We use it for stretching and healing. So an example using that would be, let's say, birth workers now who are using it in all of the traditional Mexican ways, but calling it shawl therapy and naming it... um, their own thing rather than saying this is an ancient Mexican way of healing using the roboso and let me show you how to use this way that I learned right and instead they're misappropriating it by using it in some other way and then claiming it as their own it's it's also I like the word columbicizing Mm. columbicizing So I hope that kind of helps you understand um, anyone listening, you know, cultural appropriation is not necessarily a negative thing. You know, I'm someone who is working with many different cultures as it relates to my own traditional ways. And honestly, I think that's how, um, let's just say um, Turkey, you know, Turkey has been um, invaded and and there's been so many different um, cultures that have lived in that region of the world that sometimes the foods, you know, have embraced all of these different cultures and the medicine ways as well, as as well as some of the amulets and things like that. So that would be kind of another example. 
It's such a beautiful thing to trade information and to learn from each other and how we are made different over time by those positive interactions. I'm just thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And, and negative interactions. You yes. know, like I said, this was also a means of survival for many people. Um, and so having, you know, watch somebody in your community using some type of um, remedy or amulet to hopefully stay safe. Um, heck, if it's working for them, then maybe I'll start using it too. And they would share information. Mm. Mm-hmm. And this just reminds me in the intro, something that really stuck out to me was how you spoke about how this book isn't a guidebook to becoming a curandera and that you wouldn't or even couldn't write that, but that um, rather it's sort of an invitation or an offering of these practices and recipes and and perspectives. Mm -hmm. And that's why I said, you know, in the intention for the book, I wanted to remind everyone that they can be their own healer and yeah, I, I would not be able to write a book on how to become a curandera because that takes a lifetime and I will always be learning. But I did want people to feel that they had access to something that has worked for many, many people um, working with all of those elements. And, you know, like we've already mentioned, the ancestor altar and maybe doing a a limpia, like a a smudging and working with the food and things like that. Those are all parts of my culture that anyone can embrace because I'm really wanting people to tap into their own ancestral lineage. So what you're doing is not what I would even do because we're of two different families and two different cultures. And that's what I really want to drive home for anyone reading the book. It's for everybody. As my auntie says, we're carriers of the medicine, but the medicine is for everyone. That's beautiful. So I'm curious, what is a piece of advice that was given to you that's helped you along on this journey and maybe some parting words of wisdom for our listeners? I think to stand in your power, whatever that is, is really important. Um, I'm very fortunate that when one of my teachers, one of my maestras took me aside one day and said, um, it's time to come out of the curandera closet. Like <laughs> that was really helpful. And because no one um, as an elder had really said that to me before, um, I'm now, I'll be actually becoming an elder this year because in my tradition, when you turn 52, um, you become an elder. So I feel like I'm now wanting to help um, bring in the younger ones and and also give them permission to like be that that healer for their family. I think having an elder say to me, kind of like to step into my power, was really um, I don't know. It kind of gave me like the permission that I needed because um, you know when you grow up in a culture where this is part of our culture, it's still coming out of the guise of brujería, like in a bad way, like um, witchery in a bad way. And I think that we're starting to understand now that that word was meant um, to keep us down. 
And so having other people and saying like, no, like stand in your power, like you know all of these things, you're learning all of these things, use them, put them into action, like don't keep them a secret. And we're helping heal um, from all of this um, colonialism. Felicia, I know our time is coming to an end. So before we say goodbye, what upcoming projects are you most excited about and what surprises and offerings can listeners look forward to? Well, I haven't actually announced this publicly, so I guess this is good, but I'm I, I'm actually finishing my second book. Ah, um, and it, yeah, it's something <laughs> that I have wanted to do for a really long time, but it's a children's book and it's going to be about a little magic and a little herbalism and a little curandera, you know, ah. action. So I'm really excited about that. And, um, once everything's said and done, um, I'm hoping it'll be ready for release, um, by the end of, um, next year. It takes a while because now it's being illustrated. So that's so exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can't wait. And where can listeners connect with you and your work? My website's kitchencurandera.com and my Instagram. And I feel so embarrassed even saying this. I don't know why, but now I'm on TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) But those are both a Felicia Cookout scene. Thank you so much for joining us, Felicia and listeners, today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Ballou and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Join us for next week's episode for an exploration of archetypal motherhood. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time. <laughs>